Hey everyone, on this episode of History Unloaded with Danny and Ashley, we have a return guest, one who will increase our downloads for one week and one week only, Ian McCullum. Hey guys. <laughs> the sad thing is that's so true. It's so accurate. Sorry. sorry. It, I mean, we. Yeah, it, I it was our most downloaded episode. Well, that's cool. But it did. we did get a bump that lasted a few weeks from it. So it wasn't just... <laughs> and then they... They learned who we really are. I feel like that was a part of the <laughs> advertisement for this episode. Um, so in this season, uh, season five of History Unloaded, we've been talking about new gun owners in America. In case you haven't heard, there's a lot of them. And basically looking at how that can affect collecting, how that affects scholarship, how that affects museum interpretation. And so we've done several episodes leading up to this, and on gun collecting. Uh, we talked, Danny and I talked initially about kind of will new gun owners mean new collectors? And if so, how to go about doing it? Then we spoke with Jonathan Ferguson um, on an episode that ended up more about gun restrictions in England than <laughs> actual collecting for Americans. And so today I wanted to talk about um, your book that has apparently caused a whole resurgence. So I guess uh, beginning of an interest in collecting areas that people hadn't thought about. Um, so to cue it up, we talked a little bit in the last episode about how we think new gun owners won't necessarily be all about Colts and Winchesters and Smith and Wessons and how they'll be probably more interested in a lot of different types of things because of what's available. If I can put it in just a nutshell, I certainly hope so. And I say that without <laughs> any animosity towards people who collect Colts and Winchesters. Ditto. <laughs> so one thing that I've sort of seen as, you know, watching um, forgotten weapons grow and gain a lot of internet notoriety um, is that you've brought focus uh, to areas that previously weren't necessarily that collectible. Um, you know, French arms in general, there, there were collectors out there. Um, I think that's safe to say, but they're not, they weren't that high on most people's list, but I'd say they're higher up the chain than they used to be. Um, I think that's also true for just a lot of the guns that you've brought into um, sort of the gun public eye, if you will. I mean, do you, obviously, I don't think you set out to do that, but do you, have, do you would you agree with that, that, it, <laughs> that you have caused this rise in? Well, I certainly, I certainly areas? didn't set out to do it. I'm a little leery of taking credit for a trend that's that substantial. Um, it's certainly not mm -hmm. just me because there are a lot of other people on the net who are doing similar sort of work. Um, I mean, obviously Othias and May at CN Arsenal are a fantastic example. There's, mm -hmm. it, it's taken, you know, the internet's not really that old in the grand scheme of things. And before we had the internet, the only way to really if you're going to become interested in something, you have to be able to learn something about that subject. And firearms reference books, firearms literature was really pretty skimpy on everything except the stuff that was considered the traditional collectible firearms, which are the Colts and the Winchesters and the Smith and Wesson revolvers. And what the internet has done is allowed people to actually communicate and share information on these very specialized subjects. Like 30 years ago, how would you find out about Serbian rifles? Like you couldn't, I mean, there are a few other people who are interested in them, but how are you gonna find those people? Well, today with the internet, 
it's really easy to find those people. And by making the information available, I think that's what gets people interested in these subjects that they didn't necessarily know. Like, it wasn't that they were uninterested, it's they didn't know that the thing existed, or they didn't know anything about it that would make them interested in it. And so I hope that what I'm doing has expanded interest in a lot of these guns, because that's what I'm trying to do is share the the cool stories behind a lot of firearms that aren't well documented in the, you know, in the common knowledge. But I'm not the only person doing that, not by a long shot. You know, I just realized, Danny, that like all the advice we've given just like on autopilot about like collect books yeah, is kind of like against everything we're going to talk about. We have talked about and we'll talk about this season where we're like, books are crap. Well, and we're getting new books that are better, but like old books can be crap. <laughs> I feel like we've just literally, <laughs> I, I mean, just realized, we've we realize a lot of things. Collect knowledge. Yeah, sometimes we phrase it as books, but I think other times we phrased it as knowledge and we can go back. We'll just have to be careful to phrase it as knowledge or occasionally books. Um, books yeah, now. In the, yeah. In this season, like we've Ian's talked a lot book. of it. Yeah. Like Ian's. <laughs> um, but we have talked a lot of like, you know, about some of the rougher areas of firearm scholarship. I, I see. I mean, we talked about this too, as you mentioned, you know, there were the Colts and Smith and Wessons and Winchesters that I always say were popularized by the Western, whether that genre of collectors will admit it or not. I agree um, with you, by the way. And then that sort of led to the books about those subjects. Um, then, you know, popular culture, you know, hit the Western sort of died out as we got into the 90s and early 2000s. Not totally died out, but it certainly declined. Um, new media brought in different eras of firearms for people to get interested in right as the internet hit um, and grew. And I think you're right that that expanded a, an almost a democratization of that's the second I shouldn't I use that word too many times. I should be banned from using it again this season. I don't um, think you use that word at all this season. No, I, I'm pretty sure I said it in another episode. But anyways, that sort of broadened everybody's you know ability to a broader scope of firearms interest hit at the same time as an increased ability to communicate, like you mentioned, Ian. So that to me was like, that's an interesting confluence of events. I think a big to broaden the collecting world. I think a big part of it as well is an acknowledgement or a, a refutation of the idea of what a gun collection has to be. Cause traditionally a gun collection was in many ways, sort of a fixed ideal, no matter who you were, if you were a gun collector, you were, trying to meet this preset standard of like beautiful hundred percent like new examples of like these handful of distinct firearms. Like, if you're a really good top end collector, you're going to have a gorgeous original Henry rifle and you'll have a Winchester 1873 and you'll have a Colt single action army and you'll have a Luger, which is kind of like, Ooh, it's a little bit out there. Cause that's not American, but we'll, we'll agree that like, that's a cool collectible gun. Uh, so you'll have a, a pristine Luger. And what we have today, I think, is a great expansion of, of an understanding of what gun collecting can be. And I always tell people it, it makes absolutely no difference if anyone else thinks that your collection is interesting. The point is, collect if you're going to collect guns, collect the guns that you are interested in, not whatever someone else's standards are. And so I think we have a lot more people today who are interested in firearms in used condition 
um, guns that are surplus that have come out of multiple conflicts and show it, you know, guns that are kind of beat up in a way that 50 or 100 years ago, that sort of thing would have been completely rejected from a proper firearms collection be just because of its condition, much less it wasn't the right kind of gun. Um, and that had, in addition to widening the, the types of guns that people are collecting, that also has dramatically made them more available because the classic collectible firearms are incredibly expensive today because they're all sought out by an older generation of collectors who want that beautiful original condition 1873 Winchester, where if, I, if I'm interested in Serbian guns and I want to go get a Serbian Mauser, I can get that thing, well, before the past year of panic inflation buying, which we can talk about if you want, but I could go get that thing for like 250 bucks. You know, I can be a guy working... I can be a young guy working an entry-level job and I can still start dabbling in firearms collecting, which is something that you could never do before. So that actually makes me think of, let's talk about it, uh, to have new gun owners started buying up weird stuff that gun collectors may want just so that they can use them because of the shortage? Probably a little bit. I don't think that's a big impact. I'm sure a little bit of it happens, but... It'd be uh, kind of funny. I mean, I wonder what it was like if there was, you know, a a Yugoslavian Tokarev pistol copy sitting in a gun shop and everything else gets bought out and you're the last panic buyer and there's a that and a box of 762 by 25. Do you go home empty handed or you go home with that? I, I don't know. I think a lot of those guns got sold in those circumstances. Yeah. Just yeah. like Yeah. So basically there may be a whole new, like there may be a whole group of new gun owners who are sitting <laughs> on the weirdest things possible because that's what they could get their hands on. And they don't even know, like they don't know that they're <laughs> hipsters, you know, they, they have a firearm before it was cool. And, and you know what? And maybe that would inspire them. They'd be like, this doesn't look like anything anybody else is carrying. I wonder what I've got. And then they start Googling it and they find Ian or see an arsenal or Matthew Moss's blog. Historical firearms, right? I always seem to want to go history unloaded, which is us. But, you know, it's kind of funny. I would love to know if that I have no doubts that it did. At all. Um, I think what we've seen over the past year to two years is, and I think this has happened from what I've seen, this has happened in collectibles well beyond the field of firearms, is a lot of people who whose income didn't really take a hit during pandemic and lockdown, uh, but they weren't able to spend their money in ways that they were used to. Um, we certainly see this on Gunbroker with all the gun shows were shut down. And so everybody who's hungry to go out and spend, you know, I've got this amount of money budgeted towards buying cool guns, but there's nowhere I can do it because the shops are all empty and the gun shows are all shut down. They go to places like Gunbroker and like some of the large auction companies. And we've seen a tremendous escalation in prices there, which I think is largely because people are, you're focusing more people and more money into a smaller number of venues. You know, if I'm used to spending my, my disposable income on a, a cruise to Europe every year, well, you're not doing that in 2020 either. So maybe I get interested in guns and, and that enough people do that, that prices get driven up there. And my understanding is we've seen the exact same thing in collectible stamps in tennis shoes, which I guess I, maybe I'm naive. I didn't realize that was a collectible, but apparently it is. Uh, whiskeys, cars. Toilet paper. Yeah. Anything that can be considered a, a collectible thing has gone up substantially in 
I'm loath to say value, but it's certainly gone up in cost in the past year or two. Well, I mean, Mark and I, so before my husband's company bought Gun Broker, so last year, I mean, we paid our closing costs in our house, which is yeah. ammo we sold on Gun Broker because <laughs> ammo is so expensive and, you know, he's president of an ammo company and that's professional shooter. And so actually that's called cheating stuff over the years. Yes, that is oh, in some way that has to it? be unfair. <laughs> You're a sponsored shooter. <laughs> Shh, we'll just wipe this one under the rug. We'll just wipe it under the rug. You know, it made me think about something that I don't think Danny we've ever talked about. We don't have to now, but just as something, you know, that came to my brain is with working on the Colt type single action cases and the Ruger old models, you know, there's a lot of people then that's how the lawsuits still happen that go to a pawn shop, you know, or a secondhand store and they buy something that they think looks cool, but they've got no context of, you know, the, the background behind the old model and why there's new models and all this stuff. They buy the gun, they load six rounds. They don't know what's going on. So like, it would be interesting to talk more about pawn shops and what people do ultimately end up with there and, all the lawsuits. Or those people who just went and bought themselves a Tokarev to carry without thinking about the fact that it has no safety at all. (laughs) Right. Aren't there, there's one, one of the batches of imports, weren't they, they added safeties to those, I think. Um, So there's like added safety and no safety models. And they added safeties to basically every batch that was formally imported into the U S recently, someone got the clever idea to add a, a, a Glock style trigger safety to them which is brilliant because that's easily removable if you're a collector who doesn't want it. Previously, what they'd always done is some variation on drilling a hole in the frame and adding a thumb safety, which is awful. Um, it really, it's a terrible thing for collecting tokarevs because they've all been hacked up to add these safeties, which of course has dramatically increased the relative value of bring back ones from Vietnam, Korea, World War II that weren't formally imported. And so they don't have safeties. So Ian, would you say, like, I don't know if you've experienced this at all, but since you have a very active commenter <laughs> section on all of your different pages, have you like run across anyone that is a new gun owner that like reaches out to you or is in the comments of like, cause I know you get like people who are new to like your site, but have you noticed that? Is that something? I haven't really seen, seen it in direct communications. I know it's out there just from social interactions and talking to friends I you know, people I know who are running gun shops and such. I know there is a significant uptick in new gun owners, but it's not, uh, they haven't really gone and reached out to me personally, as far as I can tell. Because one of the things we... Could you imagine being a new gun owner? Oh, I was going to oh, say, sorry, go ahead, one Danny. of the things that we wondered about in another episode was, will there be, and Ashley kind of alluded to this already, but, you know, we're obviously with a CFM wondering, will this eventually or immediately impact our visitation and will this eventually you know wave of new gun owners they buy a relatively commonplace you know a glock or a smith and wesson or some you know modern polymer striker pistol because of the panic buying that went on last year that might for some of them for some percentage of them that will develop into an interest in other firearms and for some percentage of that it will be historical firearms um so then do those people begin to dip their toes into seeing an arsenal and forgotten weapons and the Cody firearms museum, or are we just too far off their rate? Is there a lag time or is it just not happening? I think is the, I like that where you just ranked. Us yeah, right I just, I'm there. trying you to ride like, that. I'm riding that bandwagon as long as I can. <laughs> I think there's absolutely a subset who will do exactly that 
people who will buy a gun and go, oh, this is actually kind of fun. And oh, there's some interesting stories behind this weird gun that I bought. I wonder what's involved in others. I What I don't know is what that percentage of people is. So it'll definitely happen, but I couldn't predict how many. You know, what I would think would be an interesting thing in terms of like the the big channels uh, like yours, like Othias's, um, and the different pages. The one thing, though, that you guys do provide, which you don't provide it intentionally, but, you know, we talked about in, I think, the first episode, how we are kind of afraid that new gunners, gun owners will be scared away by old gun owners, um, you know, in terms of politics, because a lot of the new gun owners are considered, you know, quote unquote, non-traditional um, modern gun owners, although we talk about how a lot of them actually were gun owners in the past. Um, but, you know, it would be, I would think that your channels would probably be far more inviting because you guys don't deal in any of that, you know, kind of political realm. It doesn't have to be an identity for you. You know, gun ownership doesn't have to be an identity and that identity doesn't have to align with a specific po- specific area of politics. So I wonder if as people are Googling all this stuff to find information, if, you know, new gun owners who are, you know, of a different political persuasion or, or what whatever would actually be kind of drawn to you guys because you know it's just nothing that you guys really ever dabble in at least i don't really watch front weapons unless i need info so maybe i'm wrong but what? i don't think you guys do <laughs> what this interview is over <laughs> i know like everyone's like i hate you now <laughs> i do listen and read forgotten weapons you know the one i don't look at a lot is in range that's that's the one i don't look at as much sorry i think that definitely well i hope that um that we are attracting uh, non-traditional new shooters. Um, certainly, you know, I made a very conscious decision to leave politics out of what I do in public. And there is like, to me, I don't care what your politics are. This is a place where we can talk about cool, interesting guns. And, and literally, I don't care if someone's politics are far right, far left, or somewhere in between. That's not the purpose. And so, yeah, I would love to be to be able to be a source for people who would otherwise perhaps be frightened away from becoming interested in firearms. Well, I guess the one bad thing is, you know, as status as gun Jesus, maybe it limits different religions. They can't possibly relate. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I think that that is kind of interesting that I never thought about because if you're a new gun owner and you're searching for, you know, different types of gun material, you know, you get a lot of the pundits, a lot of the, you know, political influencers and you guys aren't that. So you actually may inadvertently teach new gun owners a far deeper level of knowledge than current gun owners. Inadvertently. I'm I'm not going to object to that. I'm happy to teach anyone anything. So um, talk to us a little bit about the the book that the pistols of the warlords, I think is the name of it. Yeah. Uh, Super fun book to put together. So, um, it came together kind of as a bit of a short notice project. I was given access to a collection of Chinese domestic pistols from what we're calling the warlord era. Um, we're defining, I'm defining this in terms of like the title of the book as 1911 to 1949, which is the, the Chinese revolution that overthrew the Qing dynasty. Like people think about, you hear Qing dynasty. And I think a lot of people assume like, ah, 1600s. Well, no, that, Qing dynasty ruled China up to 1911. Um, And then there was a a period of warlordism and civil war that lasted all the way until 1949 when the Chinese Communist Party won and instituted the government that exists to this day. 
So in that interim, there's this just fantastically, I mean, it's fantastic to look at from afar. It would be terrible to actually have lived through it. Uh, period of chaotic warlordism. Um, maybe the best way to explain it is imagine the US Civil War, except it lasts like 40 years and every state has its own army that's trying to control the whole country. It's not North and South. There's like, well, not 50, but there's dozens of states that are all fighting each other. That's in a nutshell for the American perspective, the Chinese warlord period. And during this time, there were a lot of arsenals set up in China manufacturing arms, some very large and very professional, and some all the way down to like one dude with a traveling blacksmith's uh, set of equipment. And rifles were made in very large quantity, mostly by arsenals, but pistols were in much less demand. You know, a big warlord, a warlord's army of 100,000 men, which is entirely appropriate at this period, would need hundreds of pistols, maybe. Um, you know, this was a status symbol sort of thing for officers. And so a lot of these guns, well, virtually all of these pistols are made individually, one at a time, and they don't conform to any standard pattern. There are copies of various Western designs, American and European pistols, and there are Chinese designs that are completely uniquely Chinese and aren't copies of anything and are fascinatingly interesting guns to look at. They are covered in weird markings. They're generally being made by people who are not literate in English. Um, you know, they read and speak Chinese, Mandarin or Cantonese but they're copying Western pistols and they know that Western pistols are good. And so they copy the markings on Western pistols, whether it's, um, you know, to convince someone who's buying the gun that it is in fact a Western pistol or for other reasons. And so you get the, but they don't read English. So you get these totally gibberish markings that are fantastic to look at. Um, and anyway, to get back to your actual question, I got access to a collection of like two or 300 of these guns. And this is a subject where you look at, if you look at five or 10 of these guns, you have no context for what's common, what's not common. Was, is this thing an outlier or is this thing normal? Well, with two or 300 of them, I was able to divide these guns into specific groupings with uh, similar characteristics. I can tell you that, for example, what I have designated the horn grip type pistol is I know they were made in one particular area maybe by one particular arsenal. I don't know who that was and I don't know where it was, but I know that those pistols are a specific batch uh, or specific design type. And so that's what we've done with the book is it's sort of as much coffee table art book as it is a reference book because there's very little detailed information about these guns, but we have access to them. And it gives that at least being able to see a couple hundred of them is uh, the start for understanding what these guns are. And they, it allows someone who's reading through the book and has say one Chinese, what I call a Chinese mystery pistol to identify where it fits into the whole scheme of what was being done at that time. I've reduced you to speechlessness. <laughs> <laughs> I was thought Ashley had something to say, so I was waiting for it. No, I, I was just, I mean, the whole thing is so interesting. <laughs> I want to hear more about the warlords. and Less the, about the pistols, more about the warlords. The, I, like seriously. Oh, I need to hear more about this. So I, have I, have a, no idea. I have a question about the pistols was, themselves, since ostensibly this is a gun history oh, podcast. Whatever, fine. Um, you and so Danny, what on is the, it? you mentioned there's like native designs and you know copies of Western designs. Was the 
copying the English or Western markings solely for those designs that were copied? Or did they apply that to designs they came up with to try and prove that this was a good firearm? Uh, the markings are universal. Got it. Um, actually, some of the Chinese patterns have a lot more of it than others. And when you see enough of them, as we have in the book, you can recognize that like the open slide FN types typically have are a lot more sparse on markings than say the horn grip types. Uh, but they're all to one extent or another covered in fake FN logos, fake Belgian proof marks, German proof marks, Mauser logos. Uh, FN and Mauser are the two main uh, subjects that were copied. But I've seen copies of, of Colt pistols. I've seen copies of, we have a, a great set of pictures of a really well-made copy of a Franz stock which is a really fairly obscure, rare German blowback 32, but it's, the shape is quite distinctive and they did a really good job copying it. They just covered it in total <laughs> nonsense markings. That's fantastic. Uh, Do you think so I'll tell you, I, knows that they're one of the most copied? <laughs> that's a good question. I don't know. It would be interesting to take some of the guns to someone who is, well, actually, I should say I did get some help on this book from Anthony Vanderlinden, who is probably the most noted author on FN firearms. Yeah. Um, in fact, what's interesting there, the FN model 1900 was very widely copied during this period. That's in fact, we have a whole chapter dedicated to copies of the FN 1900. But in addition to that, there were also a bunch of them that are FN 1900s, but scaled up, sometimes really scaled up, you know, pistols that are as big as a Mauser broom handle, uh, shoulder stock slots, you name it, um, and chambered for 763 Mauser. But mechanically and visually, FN 1900s. And what I was able to get from um, Anthony Vanderlinden is, or were pictures of an original Belgian prototype, large scale 1900. Because when FN designed that pistol, they did it for the Belgian military and they didn't know for sure like exactly what sort of form factor the military was going to want. Did they want a service automatic or did they want something more like a pocket pistol for officers? And so they made both. And so there were about eight or 10 large scale FN 19, well, it would have been FN 1899s originally made. And we know that one of them ended up somewhere in China. Now, whether that was a basis for being copied or whether these large scale copies are simply, you know, that's a cool pistol, let's make it bigger. Oh my Nobody God, knows. how funny would that be <laughs> if someone right? like found that and was like, this is what they have. I don't know why I did that accent. That wasn't even an accent. But like, they're like, this is so popular. This is a popular FN. Well, and, and it wasn't used. They, <laughs> I mean, so all good. these, you know, both American and European companies had international sales agents that would have been active at the time. And we, we know of like Winchester reps in China in that era. Um so surely this word would have been getting out to those those reps who would have likely dutifully reported it back to the headquarters that our guns are being copied. I imagine they all recognize it's it's fairly useless to try and pursue like any sort of, you know, like they would with a domestic competitor. Um, but they were trying to sell their own guns. Uh, so I, I, I have to think they would have been aware at some level of the copies being made. Probably. Yeah. Um, and absolutely. Virtually all of the major arms manufacturers in Europe and the U S were quite 
willing and eager to sell guns to the, the Chinese warlords. And frankly, the warlords, my understanding is, would typically prefer to buy Western arms because it's a lot easier and more, it, it's much more of a sure thing to give some money to a sales agent and boom, here's a, here's a crate full of really good quality guns. Where if you're trying to build it yourself, you've got to deal with employees and building facilities and quality control. And, you know, there's just, just a lot of hassle involved in when you said, your own gun. When you said employees. But often these warlords. Oh, go ahead. Well, a lot of these warlords were not necessarily on the coast, did not necessarily have a stock of hard currency. Um, and a lot of them just didn't have the opportunity or access to buy something from, from the West. When you said employees, I could only think of like, it, it encompasses a lot of things, but my mind instantly went to like a very modern HR department and like dealing with that situation in the context of <laughs> 30s China. I think in the Winchester archives, there's a couple of letters that talk about a potential, you know, like a super large order of like several million, you know, cartridges of like eight millimeter Mauser, which was pretty common. Um, to this era in China. And they're, they're discussing the potential of, you know, selling this as a large lot. I don't know if it ever happened, um, but the, the letters are there. So that's, that's what I'm basing my assumptions about Western companies being aware on is a series of letters. Yeah, no, it's, it's true. And it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know the details, but it wouldn't surprise me if an order like that did actually take place. So with the book, where can people get it, buy it? Uh, so we ran it. We ran a Kickstarter campaign to actually uh, fund the printing, which did monumentally successfully, which was really awesome. Um, the books we are hoping to have the books in November, December, um, and so we have pre-orders available still on uh, Headstamp Publishing's website. So that's headstamppublishing.com. If you I order there, <laughs> if you order there, I should say we'll take your money now because that's how the shop is set up to work, and you will get the book when we get them from the printer, which will be, depending on when you listen to this podcast, in a couple months, because they are right now in the process of being printed. That's cool. So I wanted to make sure I got that in there because I was totally going to forget at the end. Um, so I guess what is, so now everybody wants these weird, you know, Chinese guns. Uh, what's your next obscure, odd, not collectible gun that you're going to make collectible. What's the, what's the next trend? That I feel like this is insider in? trading or something. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. At the time of recording this, we haven't uh, actually publicized what the next project is going to be um, for me. Now I can tell you the next book that we're actually printing, I think, or the next big book, which we've had up on the website for a little while now is uh, a History of Russian Automatic Rifles by Maxim Popienka, uh, who is a, a Russian author that people will, I think a lot of people will recognize from his old website, gun, web, um, world.guns.ru, which well predates Forgotten Weapons. I remember like when I was first getting into guns on the internet, there were two sites. There was securityarms.com, which was terrible. And there was world.guns.ru, which had some weird ads on it, but it was really thing. good. I'm really uh, glad you just. I'm really glad you just pronounced his name because I see it all the time on social media, and I had no idea. <laughs> I'm working on it. My Russian pronunciation is not great. I will extend that. to you the offer that I've extended to others, but no one has taken me up on yet. Is that I would like to start or be co-founder of the 
ROM Revolver Collector Society. Membership dues are a block of zinc or a ROM revolver. Membership dues are a small yes. bandage. <laughs> a bandage of whatever part is embedded <laughs> in your hand. You know, that's the exact sort of thing that I would encourage people to do. Like, if you're interested in it, if you think it's cool, why not? Like, do it. Especially something like that. Those guns are absolutely dirt cheap. I mean, for good reason. But I've... I've mentioned it before. I have a friend who's interested, who really likes collecting sporterized antique bolt actions. Like you find him an 1898 sporterized Swedish Mauser in 6.5. I mean, he'll go nuts over it. It's his thing. He likes it. You know, who am I to say that that's not legitimate? Um, I have a friend who's collecting Croatian firearms, which I think is fascinating because he's getting really deep into it. He's talking to people in Croatia. He's talking to factories. He's starting to get things like production data on guns that most people just glaze right over and don't even notice. But there's a tremendous amount of interesting history to to that and area. Of the imported by right, now, if you're collecting something, Kenny, we cannot we're like we cannot, we're not crushing it today. My oh, my question has to do with language barriers because I know uh, when Herb was alive, when Herb House was alive, um, you know he spoke a couple of different languages, so he was able to go overseas and read through a lot of their archives uh, more so than Danny and I you know, could do. And so if you've got someone that, you know, like your friend that's studying creation firearms, it, you know, does he speak the language? You know, is that something that, you know, you, you see with a lot of different people who are studying kind of foreign firearms or because of the internet and the ability to have translator apps, like it's not as necessary. I don't think it's strictly necessary. Um, in the case of this particular friend, he is actually starting to learn Croatian as part of this. Now, He's interested in this largely, I think, because he has some family history in Croatia. So it's not just he randomly picked this subject, but it, I think it's a really cool example of he's got family history there. So he get and he's into guns. So he gets into the specific guns of that area, which prompts him to start learning the language to get in better contact with people who are over there. Um, frankly, I'm kind of doing the same thing with French. I got really interested in French firearms, despite not knowing any any of the French language, and I'm slowly learning the language. Uh, we are blessed as Americans that English is the, forgive me, the lingua franca of the modern world today. And as an American collector, you can generally get by most places in the world. It's not ideal. Um, and frankly, the really crusty old gun collectors worldwide are always the ones who only speak one language. You know, I can go to Finland and talk to anybody within 20 miles of Helsinki and they speak better English than I do. But you get to the crusty old gun collectors, you know, halfway up towards Lapland. And of course, they only speak Finnish. But as a general rule, as an American speaking English, you've got a lot of latitude. I think that, I mean, I feel sometimes like a crusty old gun collector and I don't speak any other languages. So maybe it's applicable to the... <laughs> United States. Although I feel like there are more older gun guys that speak other languages in order to study this stuff. Or maybe that was just her, but I feel like there's. there's so when some out there. foreign collector wanders the US looking for information on firearms and they finally make it to the crusty old gun collector in the deserts of Arizona that is Ashley Lebinsky, <laughs> they have to speak English. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, they would probably yep. encounter that literally everywhere if they like went to Texas or wherever. Nobody's speaking any other language that are gun collectors typically. <laughs> typically. Yeah. Um, well, it's like I, I was thinking about what you're saying about none of them really that were making the, these guns in your book spoke English. And I'm like thinking about all the translator apps that say absolutely nothing close to what you think it says. And Chinese is particularly bad in that realm. You know, like there's a ton of nuance and um, like intuited meaning in a lot of Chinese characters. It's it's not a language that is well suited to mechanical translation. I just realized all three of us are standing here, are sitting here talking about, you know, how we don't speak other languages and our producer actually does speak another language. <laughs> so she should go and study all the Polish fire. She could write the book on guns from radon. <laughs> there, need, there needs to be one. I'm just saying. Um, so... You could make yeah, some money, Camila. <laughs> we'll do the gun stuff. You do the translation. She's just <laughs> shaking her head at us. For the record. You've, you've broken the fourth wall of podcasting and acknowledged the existence of the producer. I don't think we do it. All. Do oh, we do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I try to make her say something. My voice randomly comes on. I always wonder if listeners think, who the hell is that? Well, and then we always like throw you under the bus as a non-gun owner, like every time. We're like, she doesn't own guns. She won't own guns. <laughs> it's our fault. It is. But we try to make Camila say something every episode, but. Almost yeah. every well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, you can't tell us what the next gun book you're going to do, which will now become a phenomenon, a cultural phenomenon. Can you say like I, something you'd like to see more people study? Oh, I honestly, what I really enjoy seeing are the, the really niche subjects. I love it when a book comes out on something really pretty obscure. Because uh, frankly, Lugers, German World War II guns, like American World War II guns, we've got so much literature on those. There's nothing wrong with newer and better and you know, getting newer information on that sort of thing. But I love seeing weird stuff. Um, was it Schiffer, I think? A couple of years ago came out with a book on rolling block rifles of the third Spanish Carlist War, which is so cool. <laughs> That is not the answer I expected. Dini, this feels like your area. <laughs> Dini, I feel like you could write a book like this. This feels like I mean, my your area. My goal is to someday... I'd, I would love to document the Ring of Fire guns like that came out of LA in the 80s. Like That would be... I would have fun with it. But we'll You should see. absolutely do that. I think that's a totally valid... I mean, I managed book. to get the Head Museum of Warson, so... Step one. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because with the Ring of Fire stuff, I mean, I say Ring of Fire to Mark, my husband, and um, and he's very knowledgeable because he's been in the industry for 20 years. And he actually doesn't know what I'm talking about when I say Ring of Fire. He does if I start mentioning the gun names. Um, but I can hook you up with a Davis, Danny. Like six to go. I'll go on the record and say, head, you write it, head stamp will publish it. <laughs> All right. But will they? Yes. Yes, they will. Okay. You, I've, Danny. Got some in, I've, 
I've got some some sway with the company. So yes, I guess I could call mine. I mean, it's got to be up to our quality right, standards. Right. But if yours is yeah. pistols of the, I have no Warlords, doubt that it would be. I believe mine would be pistols of the gang lords. <laughs> could be. I mean, ring of fire. That's a, is a, that's a good title. title as well. Just right there. <laughs> I would like to make naked lady posters famous. I don't think you need yeah. my help to do that. I think that. the internet yeah, right? has that covered I feel like mine well. would be. <laughs> I don't know. Lots of people don't know about my naked ladies. Well, it's because I'm because thanks to Dan Shuey, I am starting to get a real under the table collection. Nice. Yeah. Well, because all of us work with Winchester, he I've gotten some ones that aren't sanctioned ads but thank you <laughs> to executives so uh there's the next new exhibition coming soon to the cody firearms museum naked lady posters that puts me in a difficult spot you 9 p.m and later only yeah if you're ever gonna leave the museum as it has your outgoing exhibition okay that'll have to be it all right well thank you so much ian for coming on we're gonna continue to talk about new gun owners and all the stuff that comes along with it um i don't remember what next week's episode is so check it out in the trailer right now see ya thanks guys Next week on History Unloaded, we explore new firearms owners and how we can best lure them into the Cody Firearms Museum. Candy. (laughs) Oh my God. Brutal, man. Check it out on all your favorite podcast platforms.